0: Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but it felt like I was on my own to figure out all of the answers. So now I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. My guest this week is Jill Colangelo former triathlete and ultra runner who now specializes in researching the delicate relationship between mental health and ultra endurance sports, specifically with a focus on overtraining syndrome. So overtraining tends to get kind of tossed around like, Ooh, might be overtrained or am I overtrained or, you know, OTS and LEA and red S and all these acronyms about what actually turns out to be a very serious condition. But the problem is with overtraining syndrome is that It's not as benign as it sounds. It's not, well, there's many problems with overtraining syndrome, but that's just one of them. And this is something that we're going to talk about today with Jill. This is her area of expertise. Overtraining syndrome. What is it? What is it not? What does it feel like? Who is susceptible? What are the risk factors? How do you recover? And the relationship between overtraining syndrome and also generally some really interesting research that she has found about the relationship between mental health and hours of training per week as an endurance athlete. Jill, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. Hey, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So before we get started and talk about our topic today, which is overtraining syndrome, go ahead and tell us about yourself. Tell us about yourself as an athlete and how you ended up becoming a researcher who studies overtraining syndrome. Uh, Let's see.
1: Well, as an athlete, I think I was kind of like Every kid who played, you know, two or three sports in high school. I was a goalkeeper in soccer for most of high school. Um, I played uh, soccer in college just my freshman year and then did what everyone does and goes, oh God, I don't have time for this. Um, And after college, graduate school, I spent a lot of time um, smoking cigarettes and drinking tequila. I went to graduate school in Mexico the first time, so that's how that goes. And in order to get healthy, this I just felt really awful. I was 23, and I remember just kind of like really feeling terrible, and I decided to start running, which I did um, in 90-degree heat uh, um, in Mexico, actually, and went to try to accomplish a three-mile run and kind of hacked up most of a lung in the process. Uh, I even fell and skinned my knee. However, somehow the love bug bit me, and I just – Fell in love with running from there. I had always, obviously, when you're you're an athlete in school, you're training, you're running as part of that training, but I didn't really fall in love with it as much as I did after that point. Um, eventually started training for marathons. Uh, then kind of in the back of my mind the whole time, I understood, I learned about ultramarathon and had it out in the back of my mind as like, someday I'm going to do that. And it was kind of a long and winding road to get there going into triathlon for a number of years, and then finally um, heading into ultramarathon and trail running, uh, to today, where I do a lot of hiking and, you know, um, getting into my mid and upper 40s now, so there's a lot more weight training where there used to be, and uh, most of my exercise is flapping my jaw about this topic. <laughs> I got into the research, since you asked that question, I, I got into the, to the research because of my own experience with overtraining syndrome and uh, amenorrhea, obviously, as an extension of you know doing what we all do, which is run too much and, and not watch our nutrition. I will not use this as an excuse, but I kind of will, which is that I got diagnosed with celiac disease when I was 25. Obviously, it's genetic. I had it my whole life and didn't know. And I didn't really do a good job of replacing the gluten-containing stuff, which is all the carbohydrates that an athlete needs. I didn't do a good job of replacing that with um, starchy carbohydrates, not non-gluten-containing starchy carbohydrates. So I had a real um, energy deficiency there. Ended up with amenorrhea, ended up with full-blown overtraining syndrome, and I became curious, after kind of recovering from that, I became curious as to how that was possible because I was told that this was a no limit situation, that the only real limits that I had as an athlete were the ones that I sort of imagined for myself. And that with training, because of a training effect, that I would be able to really kind of achieve this sort of infinite, um, infinite benefit from exercise. I would just become better and better and more and more trained. And I would just be able to kind of run forever. And that's really what I thought was going to happen. And then I came to understand that that is actually not, not what happens. But I wanted to understand what. how did someone get to that point? Because there's a point beyond which um, sort of it's it's not a logical training decision anymore. You really have to kind of entrance to some type of suspension of disbelief in order to train at that volume and intensity. So um, because I became curious about that, I started... I, I graduated um, from from undergrad with a psychology degree, and it's when I wanted to look back at this again, um, I was interested in it, and it seemed to me that the, the topic was more about the psychology of this training decision and not necessarily the physiology. The physiology was the outward symptom, but how I got there was more about psychology, and so hence began um master's degree to study psychology again and hopefully on and on into the future, so...
0: And it is a fascinating, complicated, frustrating topic.
1: Yes, it truly is. It truly is. Yes. And I've worked with hundreds of athletes over the years who come to me because of that frustration and complication. And I'm hopefully able to sort of direct them toward, <laughs> toward reality.
0: I want to start by diving into something that you even just mentioned in in your you know kind of Talking about how you got interested in the subject, um, that there is this misunderstanding or this belief that more movement, more exercise is always going to be better for us. And you you distilled this really, really well um, in your is this your thesis paper from yeah your masters
1: my, yep master's thesis yep.
0: Um, and you know you talk about <laughs> there is no such thing as an unmitigated good. And this is, we talk about, you know, um, more is not always better, but there are so many beliefs around exercise when so much of the world is sedentary and everybody's being told, you know, move more, move more, move more. When you get to somebody who is training for an endurance event, um, to tell them to move less, they look at you or to tell them that they might not need to move any more than they're currently moving. They look at you like you have nine heads. Because more is not always better. You cannot train unlimited in duration and receive unlimited benefit. That's not how our, our bodies work.
1: That's absolutely true. Um, so first, to go back about the fact that the health messages that we're receiving in our community do not fit us. So it is 100% true and um, that, that most of the population in the world, let's say in the you know, Western world, I'm not going to say should, but I would say that there's more of a of a need to describe ways in which people can add more movement to their days, and that message it becomes the default in the sense that it it we we perceive that as the only health message, where the truth is is that. In our population of runners, those who particular, or I should say exercisers in general, because I work with athletes that are from all sports. I mean, gym sports and, um, you know, golfer, I mean, you just, you name it. And we can find ways to continually add movement to our days to, to a, a place where it may become detrimental. So that health message becomes the default. And we have a hard time realizing that there's a whole entire other population of people for whom that message is not helpful. In fact, it's harmful. Um, because there is in fact a U shaped curve, um, uh, between health and exercise. And, and the reason why that is, and it's, it's a logical thing. And I've talked about this in, in other places before, but it's so logical that it bears repeating is that we accept that U shaped curve in virtually every other thing that we do or interact with in life, including things like sunlight and water and, Um, how much, you know, how much water you drink, how much sunlight you get and on and on, and on just any type of, even kale, God, kale is supposed to be like the healthiest food in the world. Right. But Lord knows there's a point of, (laughs) there's a point of diminishing returns on too much kale. Okay. So it's the same thing with exercise. There is a point where we are going to achieve a a benefit mentally and physically. And after that point, the curve is going to start trending downward again where we're going to incur both physical and mental um, detriments, it's going to happen. That top of that curve is gonna be at a different place for absolutely everyone, absolutely everyone. And there's no way to compare between one person and another. But there is a certain point where just continuing to to add physical activity is not going to be beneficial, particularly, and this is where we get, it becomes tricky, where adequate recovery and nutrition are not integrated into the exercise routine. So that's um, something that is true. However, we are uncomfortable with it. We are uncomfortable with the fact that we do have limitations because we are, like you said, culturally resolved this idea that we do not have limitations. And there's an awful lot of messaging around that sort of mythological, beautiful point where your body is just continually able to adapt and train and just be perfect. And I don't know, float into the sky, whatever. It's just that it's unrealistic and it's just not possible. It is more possible to, uh, to it, well, let's put it this way. It's better to understand where that limit is than it is to just ignore it.
0: Let's talk about what overtraining syndrome looks like and feels like. Uh, so I think because there are so many overlaps with, the beliefs that we have around more is always better. And if I cannot, you know, hack this, I'm weak, blah, 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 blah. And they push through and it gets worse and worse and worse. So we'll talk about what overtraining syndrome looks like from the physiological standpoint, the kind of signs and symptoms there. Um, and then we can dive into risk factors and discussions about, you know, how to ameliorate this and what recovery looks like and all of that. But let's start the the basics. What is overtraining? What is overtraining syndrome?
1: Yeah, so overtraining syndrome is a constellation of symptoms that uh, come about as the endocrine system becomes really incapable to do its job. And what happens there is the fact that we train too much without adequate recovery time, rest, adequate nutrition, um, our body becomes incapable to sort of put up with or to keep up with the amount of stress that we're putting on it and we could go down into the rabbit hole of all the hormones um i will not be as good at that as say for example and you know a sports endocrinologist would be but in layman's terms we really fry our endocrine system and our endocrine system is the master of just about every single thing our body does from metabolism to fertility to um just absolutely everything body temperature i mean you name it it does it And so when we kind of fry that system because we have an overabundance of stress hormone, um, our body is incapable to function as it should. So what ends up happening is that you find these very, um, strong symptoms that make the person feel honestly, like they're dying. I know that sounds very dramatic, but the truth is, is that if someone is thinking, Hmm, I think I'm kind of pushing too hard. I, gee, maybe I'm overtraining. You're probably not overtraining. (laughs) It's when the person thinks that they have cancer. It's when the person thinks that they have Addison's disease or cancer, or they feel like maybe I have MS or something is dramatically wrong with me because I'm waking up in the middle of the night with night sweats and I can't seem to control my body temperature. And, you know, I can't go to the bathroom and I also cannot get an erection anymore. Those types of things are what we're talking about. So it's not like, gee, my muscles are achy today. Certainly that can be... um, a simple a a symptom that you might be heading toward let's say overreaching um and over the only difference really between overreaching and overtraining is the time it takes to recover so um it's just that's sort of like semantics in terms of the difference there but overtraining syndrome will include things like gastrointestinal symptoms so that's like anything from you know bloating when people say i'm not digesting my food or oh maybe i have an intolerance to this or that um they may have, you know, diarrhea, they may have constipation, um, sexual side effects. So that's like lack of libido for everyone. Um, men who typically get an erection in the morning, like I mentioned, will not get one. Women can lose their period. Um, they don't always have to, though. That's important to know. Um, not, It doesn't happen all the time. I will say that it's pretty, pretty, pretty likely that it will happen at that point, but it's not always. You may find things like you're losing your hair, your nails are brittle, those other types of things that we would associate with. Um, being energy deficient, um, your legs will probably feel like someone took a hammer and beat your quadriceps up with them. You will notice a very distinct squeezing feeling in the muscles, particularly in the quadriceps. Let's say when you go upstairs. So, like you'll be coming home from something, get out of the car, or you know, you get out of the car and walk into your house if you have some steps, or walk upstairs to your bedroom or whatever it is, and your your quadriceps will feel literally like someone's got them in a vice. Um, There's that waking up in the middle of the night with insomnia. Most of that is due to blood sugar swings um, because typically people are under eating or they're not eating enough carbohydrate in general. So they will have massive blood sugar issues. Waking up in the middle of the night, um, people will wake up with this just cavernous hunger is the only way I can describe it. Uh, They will sweat. They will have night sweats. They will have the kind of night sweats that like soak the bed and you need to get up and change the sheets, that kind of thing. Some people will automatically wake up at four o'clock in the morning and just sort of spring out of bed. And the problem is, they'll think that that's a wonderful thing. (laughs) Wow, my body is really just used to getting up in the morning. Um, And there will be mood issues. There will be, uh, you know, depression, anxiety. Anxiety is a big one. And um, people, all the way when things start to get really bad, may notice that their endurance drops dramatically. So, where they would start to feel exhausted after, let's say, a 20-mile run. They will feel exhausted after, like, a six-mile run or a three-mile run or something where it'll just keep sliding down. Um, They will also just feel – they will just feel a sense of being drained, just really being drained, like their whole body. It's like a a fatigue that's the kind of flu fatigue, or if anyone's had COVID lately, you know what that feels like. Um, And that becomes – Very scary to people because they're used to feeling fit and they're used to feeling good and they're not really sure why this thing that they've been doing all this time seems to be creating symptoms in a way that it hadn't before. And so that's kind of some of the things to expect, although there are there there's there's some other things too. Yeah.
0: Now that the days are so short in the Northern hemisphere, you might think to yourself, I have absolutely no need for sunglasses. It's dark all the time. What would sunglasses do for me? There is no sun anymore. It's dark forever and ever and ever. Well, one, don't worry, this is temporary. The sun will reappear. But two, did you know that Gooder also makes blue light blocking clear lens glasses that you can wear when you're staring at your computer screen all day? Because they do. If you want to get your Gutter fix, even when the days are dark, you can now get blue light blocking glasses. Try saying that five times fast. In four different styles from Gutter: the OGs, Circle Gs, Runways, and the BFGs. For those of you who have an exceptionally large noggin, and now you can get free shipping on all your sunglasses using code RUNEXP on Gutter.com. That is free shipping on your entire order using code RUNEXP. On gooder.com. That's G-O-O-D-R.com. Look good, run gooder. Anecdotally, I find that athletes don't really tend to care about the other things until their performance starts to suffer. That seems to be the big like, I'll deal with the all the other crippling symptoms you mentioned, the mood disturbances, the sexual dysfunction, like the I can, you know, either sleeping four hours a night or 12 hours a night and I'm exhausted no matter what. Um, but as soon as they realize that their performance is going down the drain, oh, then then something's wrong.
1: <laughs> Definitely true. Definitely true. And I think that, um, I think in, in the experience of the, the athletes that I've worked with, it seems that the, the night sweats things is the one that scares them. Um but I actually should say and I, I should have mentioned this as one of the symptoms what seems to and I hate to say this but it's really true that's what seems to also drive people to look for help is they start to notice that they're retaining a lot of water and they're gaining weight and I'm sorry to say that that kind of aesthetic issue tends to be the one that that's where they find me. They either find me on YouTube or Instagram or they, kind of seek me out because they start to really become nervous about what they perceive as an incongruence between what they're eating and how much they're working out and kind of what's happening aesthetically. Ouch. I know that's difficult to hear, but it's true.
0: As you mentioned, there is kind of a spectrum. Like you don't just wake up one day and boom, you have full blown overtraining syndrome. Um, because and I talk about this overtraining is really a spectrum, right? You have like normal training fatigue on one side there, there is part, if you're an endurance athlete, you will go through periods of time where you're going to experience higher than normal fatigue and that's a normal part of your training and within a few days with proper recovery, everything's back to normal. It's the, you said the recovery time required as we slide down the spectrum into overtraining, that really defines, and obviously I'm assuming, assuming the severity of the symptoms. Um, one thing I've noticed that people don't like to hear about overtraining syndrome is that it may take them months or years to recover.
1: Yes, that is true. Um, it is very true, and it really depends on It depends on a lot of different factors. I, for example, men and women sort of have, uh, in my experience, are sort of different in terms of how bad they are once they realize that there's a problem. And so, for example, women, if they lose their period, they're starting to realize that they're fatigued, they lose their period. That's kind of like the outward symbol that is something's not right here. And even those women who are like, I lost my period. Great. I'm a real runner now. Even that there's something in the back of their mind. Believe me, I know (laughs) that's something that happens.
0: Um, And I just grimaced like with my whole body. I was like, oh, gosh, no. (laughs) Yes, yes.
1: I know. And it's uh, unfortunately, though, it is, especially with the younger population, and I hate to sort of generalize, but it is true that the kind of college collegiate athlete um, and even, you know, kind of in the young 20s, there is this sort of idea that I have now leveled up. I have now become a real runner because I don't have a period anymore. Um, And that is terrifying. Uh, We can leave that there for another another call, Uh, (laughs) another conversation. Um, But So I think what happens is there is some sort of recognition that there's something wrong when a woman loses her period. Men, on the other hand, do not have that visceral and outward symptom, and they tend to really go much farther down the rabbit hole of overtraining than women do, because they really don't have any sort of concept that something is wrong. So um, their recovery, as strange as it may seem, men seem to take longer to recover because they are farther down. Um, into overtraining. Um, In general, people who struggle with recovery are the ones who, and again, this is another one where I hate to overgeneralize, but if they get some bad information from, let's say, a coach or another athlete or some other source that maybe isn't well-versed in this kind of thing... They will sort of encourage the athlete to train out of it. Like there will be this kind of idea that you can train your way out of overtraining, which is not the way to recover from overtraining, not even in the slightest. There's people who will say, well, you know, if you keep your heart rate below this or that, like, yeah, no, that's not, that's not gonna, if you recover, it will take much longer. And it is likely that you will continue to experience pretty strong symptoms all the way through that. And so I think that, um, people do unfortunately get information about what is required or what they should be doing through recovery. That is not helping them in their recovery. And so I do think that there's a wide variety of acceptance and understanding of the time it takes to actually heal. Because remember, we're not just healing a muscle here, even though that would be, you know, if we tore a muscle, you know, that would be something, well, we're healing an entire endocrine system here. We're, we're healing hormones in the body. And that is something that isn't just a couple of weeks.
0: Let's talk about some of the risk factors um, for people who are, it's a most at risk of developing overtraining syndrome, given what we know about their training habits and maybe their approach to exercise and their beliefs about exercise and, and body composition and that sort of thing. Because you talked a lot about exercise addiction and it kind of goes back to our the way that we're fed information and messages about exercise that more is always better. And I think some people, when they are confronted with something like the phrase exercise addiction, don't believe that it's true because how could something that's good for you be something that's bad for you?
1: I, I, will, I will hold that thought for a second and say that what I believe is that there are risk factors. For overtraining syndrome that could create behaviors that look an awful lot like an addiction. Alcohol and drugs, or substance addictions, you know, gambling, sex, those are kind of process addictions, right? And so we can certainly look and see parallels between definitely process addictions and something like what we experience um, in, let's say, an exercise addiction. And I think that there's you know, there's research to suggest that there's a lot of similarities in terms of how people um, relate to exercise and, and looking at how a process addiction would develop. And there's a lot of similarity there. But I think the most important part of that, because most people will not, that will not resonate with them. Most people will say, like you said, that I'm not addicted, right? But what they will say is running is my therapy. What they will say is, I don't feel like myself on a rest day. What they will say is, I need this today. I have, to, I have to do this today or else I just can't focus. I'm not going to be myself. Uh, I'm going to have a bad day. And so when we, in, in all of those cases, including in the process addiction and in those substance addictions, what we are doing there is we are asking either a substance or an activity to shoulder the burden of something else that's happening within us. We are asking, let's take it back to to like running, we're asking the sport to carry what is a mental health concern, which is a deep insecurity, which is a question about ourselves, which is an existential crisis, which is an anxiety, it's a concern, it's an old trauma, it's an, an impending divorce. Who knows what it is? But we are asking the sport to carry that for us, and that is not A sport is not designed to do that. So when we ask the sport to carry that burden for us, what we're doing is we are using it um, as medicine. We are engaging with it in a way that is not about our performance. And it's not about how good an athlete we're gonna be. And we're not really thinking about recovery. We're just thinking about how I can get my fix and how much I can push this thing to give me my fix. So now we circled back to addiction again and unfortunately that kind of behavior is not only common it is actually encouraged in media in movies in all kinds of outlets certainly on instagram social media everywhere we go we're going to see people glorify the usage of sport for mental health uh, support and we're going to find we're going to find that people become very, uh, very, they they do not want to hear truth about why that's not a great idea. They become very, very attached to their coping methodology using sport because no one ever told them that there's a better way.
0: And of course, the big concern, aside that it's a a general concern that it's not not a replacement for therapy, <laughs> um, but that that the that the behavior continues despite um, adverse effects or in situations where it's obviously detrimental to your health. And I'm thinking about the runner who can't take a rest day when they are dealing with an injury that really should have them on the couch. If they are training, you know, in conditions where the weather is unsafe, like it's the getting up at two o'clock in the morning, like it's just it's that you know not everybody does this. But when you start drawing some of these parallels between like, wow, that's that's not normal. Um, that's actually harmful, not beneficial to train despite having a stress reaction, right? Like This is, on paper, it makes sense, but internally, a lot of people, they can't let go.
1: Yes, and the reason why they can't let go is because our culture glorifies things like discipline and our culture glorifies things like achievement and success and no one ever put any type of color around what that actually is no one told us what success is everyone thinks that um you know discipline is the means to success and that discipline means that you just no days off and you just diesel it until you can't you know you can't get up anymore what god i remember what do what they used to say when, if, if one of us would fall like during a trail run, if the, you know, if the bone isn't sticking out, like keep going, or I there's some little cute little phrase or whatever. It's like kind of ridiculous, but, and we kind of laugh and we joke and we go, Oh yeah, we're so hardcore. And the truth is, is that the definition of success is holding space for the recovery time and holding space for good nutrition and holding space for self care. Um, and I don't mean self-care, like, you know, go have a facial. I mean, like, self-care, like, choose to eat breakfast. That's self-care. Um, and we're not taught those things. We're just taught things like, um, you should be on a run streak. Every time I see someone, on a, like, glorifying their run streak, like, this is something that really makes me want to throw my computer across the room, because this is exactly what we're talking about here. It's like, that run streak is not healthy. There is no such thing as a human being who never needs to take not one day off ever. Like that's not that's not realistic, and it's not something we should shoot for. I actually am more excited about the athlete who is unattached to the sport in 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 that way that they need it every single day chronically, and can take either you know a week of downtime, a week of vacation time off. Somebody who uh, works in rest days takes it down a season like where they're just you know skiing or hiking or doing something completely different and those are the athletes who will actually have more longevity in the sport and this is why I think that the messaging that people get particularly newer runners particularly newer runners because I understand that when newer runners first start it's like you want to try to you know everyone's like oh I want to run more days per week great. That's awesome. That's a great goal to have when you're first getting started, you know, you're first getting your feet under you. And so we tend to focus as newer runners on that message, right? I just need to do more. I need to do more days. I need to do more days. No one teaches those new runners how to listen to their body and listen to their mind and understand um, when it is time for you to maybe back off or take a rest day or go, you know, do some stretching or foam rolling or whatever, because all of those things are important, but they're not fancy. So we don't teach runners to do them.
0: I um I, so full disclosure. I I did. I used to do. I used to be a run streaker when I was a new runner, and uh, and I've talked about this on a previous episode before. Um, it's and I, as my relationship with the sport deepened, and as my knowledge of the sport grew and improved, my relationship with myself and all the lessons and um, kind of crash course in them, I realized this thing that I had been glorifying and very very proud of was one of the least healthy things about my relationship with a sport and one day I just ended and I just and I had been talking about it like oh I'm done on a run streak and I realized that I just kind of never it's not that I wanted to come out and do a big mea culpa but like I just needed to never talk about it again that like I don't you know because sometimes even talking about this thing that I did and I say it was a bad idea please don't do this somebody out there we will look at that and say, well, she did it, and she seems fine, because we always think that we are the personal exception to this big rule. We always want to think that we're the special ones, that, oh, that person can't handle it, but I can. I'm fine with, insert whatever the thing is here.
1: Yes, that um, I find is true, not just in you know things like how much volume and intensity someone can withstand, but also what sort of nutritionally someone can withstand. And I say that because across the sport, and this this you know is something that adds to. We talk about overtraining syndrome. What is one of the things that the runners I work with or the athletes I work with seems to have in common? One of them is a real fear around eating certain foods, and they believe that they will not. They will be the one person who doesn't happen to need that food or food group or macronutrient group. They think that they're the one that can get by without it. Um, and unfortunately they do learn, take some time, but they do learn that that is not true. And it's this exceptionalism that I do believe, as you've just said, is a detriment. It is something that unfortunately there will be a reckoning at some point. And after that reckoning, um, you know, people will either adapt and learn and hopefully make better decisions and recognize the fact that the, the most important thing they can do is less. <laughs> and that, Or they will refuse to accept what they've learned and they will still continue to bang their head against the wall. And by the way, I say that because I was one of those people. So Before history is written, Bobby Orr, the net, the and it's played. Tinelli, Neister,
0: Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. I work primarily with marathoners and below in distance, but I get some questions about the volume of training required to run ultramarathon specifically, about, like, is that how do these people handle it? How is it that person A taps out at 20 miles a week and person B can run 85 to 100 miles per week? How is it that the higher volume runner can handle that much more? Um, why don't they, why aren't they overtraining? Um,
1: first of all, to be clear about overtraining syndrome, it is not likely that someone would be suffering from overtraining syndrome and would be able to continue to train almost at all i mean people who have overtraining syndrome are not they're really they're not like out there in the middle of like you know uh, a 20 mile run thinking i wonder if i'm overtrained no they're on their bed they're on their floor they are like can't get up off the floor they're really 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 physically suffering um and it is extremely hard for them to do anything so i think that Um, this is not something that could be happening to you and you're unaware of it, like you are incredibly aware of it. Um, In terms of overreaching, I think that you can probably be sort of pushing your limits or you could be heading toward a place where you are under-recovering and you might feel some residual fatigue and you might be kind of struggling through your workouts. You might push that off as like, oh, it's just this week, it's just this month, whatever, and then that could develop into something more. But overtraining syndrome is not something that you would, have and not be aware of and with regard to whether or not you can overtrain on low volume and that's tricky what i will say is that you do not have to be an ultra marathoner to abuse training so we think of like that high volume training um without recovery as kind of abusive and then so if you come from my side of it you go okay well how does that person get there? Well, they're potentially training in a way that's you know not in line with normal training techniques, they're actually adding mileage and intensity where it doesn't need to be. They have gone beyond what is necessary to complete, let's say a 50 miler or a 100 miler, and they're doing more. Why are they doing more? There's a psychological reason, chances are behind that, right? Or they're misinformed or uninformed, okay? So I would say that same concept can apply to someone who's training at a lower distance and lower levels of intensity in the sense that they could either be misinformed or uninformed about how much they need to rest and how much they need to eat and recover. I think that they can also, like the 5K runner, the 10K runner, the half marathoner, can be using the sport to, again, shoulder the burden of something much greater. Say, for example, something like weight loss. Sometimes we might be using the sport to control our weight. We have found a certain amount of success with that. And we feel unwilling and unable to step away from it and to engage in good nutrition and recovery practices because of this body image thing this weight thing that we're trying to sustain or increase and so we are misusing the sport in that case so i would i would say that we can do ourselves a great amount of harm whether we want to call that on lower volume intensity whether we want to put a name that or not we can do ourselves a great amount of harm even a 5k runner a 10k runner or a half marathoner or or whatever um, if we are misinformed or uninformed about actually how much recovery and how much it takes to eat of the proper kind of uh, nutrients to keep our bodies in good shape for the long term, and we can we can undereat dramatically, we can underrecover dramatically, we can really do ourselves a lot of harm in that space, uh, even at a lower volume and intensity.
0: I wonder if this is your experience too. I often um, talk to athletes who describe themselves primarily as runners, and maybe they're just getting into the sport, and um, they only in their minds seem to count running as exercise, and then like everything else they do during the week doesn't somehow count. Like, oh, the fact that they walk three miles every day, and they also go to CrossFit, and then they like to go to Pilates, and then they go hiking, like all these things. And I, I've had athletes come to me for coaching, and I, I, I ask them like in total the stuff they're doing during the week like i'm only running you know 15 20 miles but they're doing 10 to 15 total hours of exercise um sometimes very high intensity exercise in their week and in their minds it like doesn't count
1: absolutely um and i can tell you that um i'm working with an athlete right now who is a professional athlete in a sport that has nothing to do with running at all zero and that person, um, you know, we couldn't figure out what was going on. And it's like, well, if you add up all that this person is doing between one activity and the other and walking here and walking there and, and going to a, a gym to do this and going to a trainer to do that and taking this class and adding and adding and adding, you end up with a person who's doing a huge amount of hours of activity per week. Um, and when that is coupled with not so great nutritional choices and also like we said inadequate rest you have a situation where a person can very quickly um become energy deficient and under recovered and they you know and and again of course we talk about these cultural things that people pick up about like an active recovery day like that is not a thing active recovery is not a recovery day um a recovery day should be like you and like Netflix, that should be your recovery day. It should be like you on your butt, like on your couch, and you know you're watching a series or a movie or something. Um, there is no such thing as active recovery, and you are you are still exercising as far as that's concerned. And so, um, absolutely correct. And there is a huge amount of again misinformation, and I don't blame athletes. It's not like it's their fault. They're just getting the wrong message um, about what constitutes a
0: workout. And, it, and that they've been told that they can successfully chase these wildly opposing goals. Like, oh, I can lose 30 pounds while I'm training for my marathon. Oh, I can do this and this and this and this. Because more the, the more impressive the goal, the more accomplished the person, yeah. irrespective of the fact that those things are just going to lead you into a, a pit of awfulness. <laughs>
1: it is true. Um, it is also true that our culture um, does not... It, it, it just expects that uh, physical changes or body composition changes are going to be part of athletics. And that is something that honestly, I will, I will put myself in that category up until I don't even know how, how old I was. I really did see those two things as, in, as interrelated, that if you did enough of a certain sport, you should look like a certain thing. Like that's what those athletes look like when the truth is. And, and um, I know you've had Kirsten Screen on to talk to, and she's one of my favorite people, registered dietitian, who is one of the flag wavers for you can either, you know, you can look like a particular athlete or you can actually perform like that athlete. You know, you are not going to be at, and then I'm quoting her, that your, your your ideal body may not be the body at which you perform the best. And I cannot, um, I cannot stress enough how important that is, is that The athlete body is the one that performs the best. It's not the one that looks like what you think it's supposed to look like. And, you know, I do blame, you know, I blame social media for this stuff. I blame uh, the fact that I feel like there should be like a content warning on photos of professional athletes who don't get a period or who have eating disorders, active eating disorders that they're aware of. And by the way, this is men and women um, in all different sports um, all across the spectrum Unfortunately, we, you know, we don't want to out people, and we, we know that everyone struggles with with different um, potentially eating issues and mental health struggles, and we certainly don't want to point fingers at people. But not everything that we see is copacetic. It's not all above board. It's not all, you know, just because you see an athlete super lean crossing a finish line, that athlete is not necessarily what we would consider metabolically healthy just by looking at them. Um And they may not be, and their endocrine system may not be healthy. They may not be, you know, hormonally healthy. We cannot tell anything by looking at an athlete um, in a photograph. But yet we do glean a lot of information for that, and we store it in our heads, and we compare ourselves to that, and it becomes this whole kind of narrative that runs in the background, and it affects us on a daily basis when we make choices about eating or training or anything else that we're doing, we're constantly kind of making comparisons between ourselves and this kind of mythical idea of what we think we're trying to achieve.
0: And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact when we look at our our sport idols who tend to look a certain way, um, mostly due to genetics, <laughs> like genetically they were born fast and genetically they're going to mostly look a certain way. It's that even when those athletes are not performing at their best, they're still much faster than most of us regular folk. And I think that a lot of, I would say, just kind of the everyday runner doesn't understand, you know, the the kind of gulf of difference between when a pro is, you know, ten percent off their PR, that even though they're much faster than I'll ever be, for them, that's something significant that means something about them and their performance and what's going. on Like, not for me to to judge or to figure out what that is, but just because on their worst day they're faster than I'll ever be on my best day, like that's still not something I should strive to. I I can't then say, oh, but they're still so fast, I should still strive to look like X Y Z.
1: Right. Um. I think what we're I think what you're talking about there is something that's really important, and it's like. If I am driving, I don't know, let's say I'm driving like a Volkswagen Beetle, okay? I understand that I am not a Ferrari, right? I'm not gonna be, that's just two very different things, right? We're both cars, right? We're both driving down the street, we're both gonna get to the same destination. However, a Volkswagen Beetle is not a Ferrari. And I will say that even the Volkswagen Beetle can aspire to be the best Volkswagen Beetle it can be. I mean, like I can be as fast as I can be, and I can find ways to be competitive and find ways to be excited about the challenge of being the best I can be for myself. Um, comparison to something that is like from another planet, as far as I'm concerned, like I will never, and, and I will say this, like even at my very best as a triathlete and as an ultramarathoner, like I was a mid to back of the Packer always um, because I just don't have that gear, you know, that like fast gear. I just don't have it. I just genetically do not have it. Um, And I think that people get caught up in the vernacular of of particularly running. I think particularly if you're a roadrunner. I think particularly if you belong to a running club where there's lots of old timers who will make you think that your PR, your last marathon uh, time or your last 5K time is the most important thing about you. But I think that there's a whole other universe of participation that makes a lot more sense, which is if you want to be competitive, like think about who you are and what you are and what you're capable of and and keep your goals realistic. And that's why a coach like you is the person to have that conversation with about what are sort of manageable goals so that you find yourself comparing yourself to the right types of metrics and that you're not kind of overestimating what your possibilities are You're also not comparing yourself to things that have nothing to do with you. I mean, you know, there's not going to be a day where I'm going to ever win a race. It's just not going to happen. So, I mean, I'm not trying to say that we should, like, um, you know, not celebrate or we we shouldn't try to strive to be better than what we are. It's not about that. It's just about being realistic and realizing that um, it doesn't follow that just because you do something that someone else does that you should look or perform like they do.
0: They talk about how it's becoming the best runner you can personally be not the best runner they can be, or your friend can be, or your neighbor can be like, and your training and your recovery and how much you need to eat to support your training might look different from them. And that's because you're two completely different people. Yes,
1: absolutely. That's hugely important. Also, um, I would, and i I'm, this is another thing where I'm sorry to make a generalization, but like I would be careful of, um, if you are getting nutrition information or, or coaching information from someone who maybe doesn't understand your unique needs for your gender. Um, because there is a great difference between what genetically male and genetically females uh, bodies can do in terms of, um, you know, what is going to create problems and what isn't, what types of nutrients they should be eating, um, you know, where the focus dietarily needs to be. And there's, there's differences there. So these are important reasons why should really try to pay attention to working with a registered dietitian, working with a coach, working with someone who understands your unique needs, because um, I will say this forever, just because you can run doesn't mean you don't need a coach. (laughs) Doesn't mean You know how to run. And just because you eat doesn't mean you don't need someone to show you how to eat better. Uh, There's, uh, you know, it's, we don't, we may know how to eat, but we don't know how to feed ourselves. We may know how to run, but we don't know how to, you know, train properly. So the, professionals who can help you do that are the people that you should seek out because they will save you a lot of pain and agony in the future if you can get um, a good understanding of what you need right at the beginning
0: and like i coach and i know a good deal about nutrition but i have a coach and i have a dietitian. like exactly. <laughs> you know i know what i don't know I don't know everything. And it's so hard, even when you are a professional in this space, and I'm not a dietitian, but I am a running coach, to apply your knowledge objectively to your own situation, free of emotional baggage and biases and the things that we tend to bring um, when we look at our own lens through ourselves. It's just really hard to do that effectively.
1: It is hard to do that. I think that's one of the reasons why, for example, like everything that we're talking about today and every kind of thing that I feel confident to say is based on the research that I've done like I'm I wouldn't throw it out there unless I had numbers to back up the stuff that I'm talking about and particularly when we talk about those training decisions and and, and mental health issues as they correlate uh, with sport particularly endurance sports like there's real information out there there's real data there's real science behind the tendencies that we all have and I think that it's really important for us to, recognize the difference between that mythology and then like the actual science or the research that can tell us more accurately what's really happening or what upon what decisions we or upon what information we should base our decisions so to back away from kind of social media messages and 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 something that's trying to sell you something and to really understand that um, there's a, another source of information out there that is going to be more accurate and it's going to help you achieve your goals you might not like it though Like, you may not like to take those rest days. You may not like to weigh five pounds or 10 pounds more than you think you need to in order to perform the way you want to. Um, You may not like the fact that if you keep adding more uh, hours of exercise per week, you may end up um, less mentally, um, feeling feeling less well psychologically, uh, you know, based on my data. You may not like that, but those are the facts. And if you love the sport and you want to keep doing it, then you would be best to follow the...
0: Follow the truth, not the myth. I want to ask you about that because you you've done research on um, the I guess the the prevalence of um, mental health issues and training volume, um, and it's interesting stuff. Again, that U shaped curve. And um, it, do you want to tell us about what you found?
1: Yeah. So, um, I did research to, it's called um, the research paper is called the prevalence and type of psychopathology in ultra endurance athletes. Um, this is a hypothesis that I came up with, you know, in my normal, like Saturday morning run with the trail runners, you know, because everyone kind of used to say, you know, we're, uh, you know, what was it, you know, we're crazies with a running problem or, you know, there's always this kind of like joke about oh we're all kind of nuts but we you know this is our favorite sport and it's it was fun and it's funny and you know I, I used to joke about it too but the truth is is that it did seem to me that there was more going on in this population than um than than we knew about you know we had we on the physiological issues that were associated with ultramarathon there's plenty of research out there about what types of injuries that ultramarathoners or endurance athletes kind of get and you know sort of whether or not they're healthy in terms of you know how many do they get the flu you know do they go do they miss days of work uh you know do, are they prone to knee injuries like we had that kind of stuff but nobody really said like what's the level of anxiety or depression in this group and so i decided to take a look at that and i had over 500 um, people in the study and um what i found was that not only is there a higher prevalence of mental illness in uh, ultra endurance athletes, so that's everything from runners to um, triathletes, uh, endurance kayakers, mountaineers—you know, you name it. Biathletes, do athletes, everything. Um, higher incidence of of mental illness, so thirty seven percent versus twenty percent in the U.S. population, and then forty seven percent of that population was at risk for mental disorder. So that means that maybe there are some of those people that are undi- undiagnosed but do have risk factors, and on top of that. And this I did not plan for. I stratified the data so that we could look at, like, how many hours per week people were were exercising. So there was one group that was under 10 hours, one group 10 to 20, and then there was another group that was, you know, over 20. So 21 to, like, 36 hours a week these people were training for whatever their sport was. And what I found is that there actually was more mental illness, it was a dose effect, as you went up in the number of hours per week training. So the level of mental illness in the the top most group was more than the than the middle group was more than the the lowest group so um, it's interesting so now, now I guess you can see why when people say running is my therapy I kind of laugh because if running was your therapy that that the findings of my thesis would be reversed it would be that the people who had the lowest amount of mental illness would be those who exercise the most right and then go all the way down, but it was the opposite of that. So it means that the people who are exercising more are not getting a benefit from it mentally, not and you know, and they're at more risk and, and have more diagnosis and are at more risk for mental illness. So that is something that um, kind of changes in my mind how I view uh, how I view the management of of training for this type of sport.
0: And over 20 hours a week may sound unfathomable to a lot of people, but for ultra runners, for triathletes, for a certain, you know, that subset of, of the population, that's a fairly reasonable training volume for the demands of their event.
1: It It is. And it makes it's, I mean, I am embarrassed to say this, but I will tell you that there was a time in my life where I ran over 50 K on a weekend, every weekend. Um, and that is shocking but also not so weird for um, a lot of people who really just are those kind of high-volume runners. And um, I think that very quickly, we can end up on the top end of that. I mean, you know, I, I understand that that's extreme, but, like, if you add in extra races or group runs or, you know, you just enjoy it or you're nervous on a weeknight and you don't know what to do and you go out and run another run, I mean, you know, it happens. And before you know it, you know, you're just kind of, um, you're sliding upwards in terms of how much, but it's very interesting that I I do believe though, going back to what you said before, that there is a big difference between, you know, the person when you're running like say 20 miles a week and you decide you're going to train up for something much longer, there is a shift that happens there. And some people want to make that shift and some people don't. And I think that my research shows that that shift that happens, that willingness to enter into that kind of other realm of volume, I think that that if we, you know, again, I don't have any data behind this, so I'll say that up front. I think that that area right there is where we will find um, the person who's about to make that shift versus the person who's not. I think we can learn a lot about why we make the decisions we do if we look at that
0: that point right there. I can think of a million additional questions that come out of of what you've. Um, looked at, which is, I think, uh, one of the great things about research is that, you know, you should always have more questions at the end (laughs) than you did when you started. Absolutely. More avenues to go down. Um, I also thought it was really interesting, and you you kind of asked this too, is it the chicken or the egg, right? Is it the, were were these athletes um, in your sample, was the volume of training the cause or the effect, you know, of the the mental um, health concerns, right? Did they did they develop these issues after they started training so much or were these pre-existing? And I think it was like a kind of a little column A, a little column B and more research is needed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The research does not, I cannot say confidently through my data, one or the other. I think that there is, even just anecdotally, there's, there. we can say that there's, there's evidence for both. Or I should say anecdotally and also based on some of what we know about um, even just like brain chemistry, right? We can say that there's there's evidence for both. So, someone who is looking to um, manage something, you know, there's hoping to you that it is a sort of maladaptive coping mechanism. But let's just say they're hoping to cope with something. This sport may become attractive to them because they know that if they're engaging in this activity, they're less likely to think of something that's maybe troubling them. Okay, so that's like a possibility. And then we know that the more you do engage in this sport, and you, there are chemical changes that are happening in the brain. There's these. Opioid-like neurotransmitters that are going to pop out. You get that runner's high. That becomes compelling. Um, does that create, you know, an, an addictive quality? You know, again, jury's out. Let's do some more research. But I think that there's enough of a. I think there's enough to say. Let's look at both sides of that. And I would love to do that in the future. Um, I think that. I think that again, more research is needed. But but I would not say that there's. I mean, there, there's
0: evidence for both, for sure. Knowing that, and I'm asking you to speculate, I understand this, knowing that mood disturbances and um, mood disorders can, are kind of what I, anecdotally what I find is that mood changes tend to proceed like, hey, I think we're overreaching. <laughs> like the the runner will experience some dread or anxiety or, you know, in and then like, And then that's kind of like the first thing, and then a physical thing will follow, like higher levels of fatigue or maybe a little injury pops up, that sort of thing. Um, And I would just be curious to find, you know, how much of these elevated um, instances of, of mental illness are like the kind of the canary in the coal mine for something that might be coming down the road, um, given their training tendencies.
1: Yeah, I think at some point it's difficult to sort of um, separate one from the other, particularly when we're talking about the fact that this, a lot of what we're describing is also exacerbated by a lack of adequate nutrition. So let's just say there's a couple ways to look at this. Like, let's say if you're training more, and you decided to bump up your training for a particular event, and you haven't also bumped up your nutrition, um, your body and brain is designed to, like raise a lot of red flags when you're not when you're not feeling adequately and one of the ways that your body does that is to increase an anxiety and an underlying anxiety so it may be that you have increased your mileage you are not eating enough your body kind of responds with this sort of anxiety response and then soon after that the nutrition catches up and you may end up with some kind of injury you know Or, you know, the the opposite may be true too, you know, is that, um, you know, you come into it from, you you can come into it from many different angles, let's say, but I do think that it, and it's impossible for us to separate the mental motivation with diet and also, and by diet, I mean, just your nutritional profile of what you eat and your training is particularly when, and we have to keep saying this, but it's true, particularly when there are, uh, body composition or weight concerns because the person at that point has additional reason why they wouldn't be fueling adequately additional reason that would cause anxiety, you know, because there's a difference between under fueling causing anxiety and under fueling purposefully to keep our weight at a certain place causing anxiety. Like those are two different things, both really not good, both going to lead to poor training decisions, poor recovery decisions, but we have to really, it's impossible for us to separate those things out from each other, definitely.
0: So let's go back and, and circle back and talk about ways to kind of catch, treat, and recover from overtraining syndrome, um, which I I know is um, a frustrating thing because you can't, and I think you've said this in a, in a post recently, you can't just like take a blood test and be diagnosed with overtraining syndrome. Like you said, it is a constellation of symptoms. It kind of, it, it does affect your um, endocrine, endocrine system but also a bunch of other systems in your body and this is where and i'm sure this is when people find you is that they they don't know where to turn their doctor can't tell them what's wrong they know something's wrong and they have like i don't i don't know what's going on who can i turn to to tell me what's actually happening in my body
1: Yeah, I think so. um, Unfortunately, you know, the the doctors are in a difficult position because, you know, Western medicine is taught like, you know, we need to have some kind of biomarker for us to point at, you know, and even if you look at sort of the, um, you know, International Olympic Committee, their consensus statement on overtraining syndrome, they will tell you like there is no specific biomarker. There's a bunch of different things that we can look at. But you sometimes in some cases can't even rely on that. And you would have to have access to a huge amount of money, diagnostics, healthcare care, team. I mean, it's just not realistic for most people. Um, and so if you are not getting answers, uh, well, first of all, you can find me. <laughs> but um, in terms of recovery, it is the simplest and hardest thing it, hardest thing to do. It is equally easy and equally hard, which is to say that it really requires um, an acceptance. That's like the first thing. You have to really accept that um, this thing that you we started this conversation with, this thing that you thought was healthy is actually hurting you. And once you can get your brain around that, um, it is important to set your mind to the fact that this is going to be a long process. It is a worthwhile process. If you do not complete the process, it will keep going. Like it will really keep going. And, you know, there's evidence to suggest that if you inadequately recover, that your overall ceiling will be lower in terms of what you can withstand uh, for volume and intensity kind of forever. So, um, you know, not to be scary, but dedicating yourself to, to recovery and taking this time is super important. And we talk um, when I work with athletes, we talk about what kinds of stuff they're eating, what kinds of stuff they're not eating. We talk about how much they're training and not training. Less is always going to be better. I tell athletes in general that they really need to think about removing 80% of their volume intensity. And then they like want to hang up the phone. But that's really what we're talking about here. We're talking about walk, we're talking about some stretching, foam rolling, we're talking about tissue repair, adequate nutrition, tons of sleep, uh, eating within an hour of waking up, keeping cortisol managed, adding in many, many other tools from the toolbox of mental health management. And why, why do we keep going back to mental health here? Because um, realizing why you have, Gotten here is usually because again, you're using this sport to do something, you know, and unraveling that reason is going to help you not do it again. So that requires, you know, maybe working with a therapist, maybe uh, you know, doing some meditation and maybe doing some journaling, maybe trying to figure out, you know, honestly, I've worked with athletes that have done things like, you know, gotten a dog out of nowhere. Like, we're just like, man, I'm gonna change my life, I'm gonna get a dog. Um, people who Broke up with boyfriends and girlfriends, I'm sorry to say, like people have made some pretty major shifts in their lives that were no longer serving them because they kind of had used the sport to cope with something else terrible. I've had people change jobs, you know, do all these things. By the way, that's not to say that you're going to have that kind of catharsis. That's not necessary all the time. But a severe, again, it's that reckoning that has to happen. Um, And so we talk about some of the practical solutions that people can do, you you know, tips and tricks to get through a day. But we also talk about the deeper philosophical meaning of this stuff. Like, how did I get here and how am I not going to get here again? And, and inherent in that is teaching people to have a deep respect for their body and what it can and cannot do. We, we all think that, you know, there's, you know, there's always t- another tomorrow. But, you know, what we do today has an effect on not only our health, um, but also our health, I should say, right in the, in, the, in the here and now, but it also has a huge effect on how we will age, Women in particular have to think about this stuff if they're uh, estrogen, if they're not making enough estrogen, you know, because they lost their period during this process. I mean, that is a concern for bone health, uh, cognitive health, heart health. So um, we talk about all these different things um, when I when I work with athletes. Most important, though, is that acceptance piece. Most important is that willingness to realize that there's a better way to do this.
0: I would imagine that by the time people have found you and are in that stage of overtraining syndrome when they like are practically incapable of functioning, let alone training in any meaningful way. That's, I mean, that's as somebody who's been in similar places and been like, I literally have nowhere else to go. I may as well try this because why not? Um, I can still probably see situations that when people come to you and are really trying to bargain their way out of trying and needing to train less. Oh, Does that yeah. happen a lot?
1: Oh my gosh. You have no idea how much. Constantly. Wait, here, my, I'll tell you some of the stuff that I get all the time. Um, what if I just eat more? That's the question. What if I just eat more and keep training what I'm training? Um, I get that all the time. Um, I get questions like, well, my, my trainer, because, like, say, for example, it's a gym athlete or if it's someone, who is more on the elite or professional side and they're working with a coach or a team, they might say, well, my coach says that I should come back into the gym and do a stress test or that I should do like a run running test or I should try some speed work and see like what my heart does because, you know, they'll start doing all these like, you know, tilt tests and all this crazy stuff to check. Like what does your heart do if I put some stress on it? And the thing is, is like, what would you do that for? Like, Basically, the reason behind doing those things and all that negotiating is because you're trying to heal faster, yet you're not willing to do the one thing that makes you heal faster, which is do nothing. So it's it becomes it becomes a complicated issue when, again, that acceptance piece doesn't come in. That's when you get that negotiation and bartering and I'll do this, but I won't do that. And honestly, a lot of times I like to tell athletes, you know, to, okay, well, if that's your plan, like, see how you do for a week, you know? Um, and inevitably it's, it is, it becomes frustrating for them to realize that doing more is still, is elongating the process. And that's typically what happens. So rarely, um, do I have someone immediately accept advice? <laughs> no, sometimes, you know, but, but more often than not, I think it's human nature. I can't blame anyone for that. Cause I think I did it too. You know, I tried to train through the initial stages of, Uh, what I understood to be overtraining syndrome. I thought if I just did a little bit less, you know, and eventually I was in so much physical pain that I had to completely stop. And that happens too, to some people. Um, But there's an awful lot of that negotiating happening for sure.
0: So the ultimate is to never even need to get to this place to begin with. A lot of, uh, we never, (laughs) let's just put it this way. You don't need to you don't wanna to have to talk to Jill about this if you don't need to. Yeah. I love you, but don't <laughs> um, call me. Don't need to call what, me. What? <laughs> right? Like let's let's stop this train several stations back. What are the what will you call kind of the foundational principles that endurance athletes should think of in terms of the balance of training and recovery? Because I mean the the part of this is too much training, not enough recovery. Right? right? So When you get to overtraining syndrome, you need to stop training and recover basically 100% recovery, almost 0% training or 20% training. Um, how can we not even need to get to this place where we need to stop training to fully recover from the damage we've done to our bodies?
1: Yes. First, consider how and where you learned about, um, the sport that you are in love with and ask yourself why you're in love with it. Understand that first, because if you came into it with, again, the mythology the beautiful story of the person running through the night and the, you know, that whole thing, um, you're going to have a harder time letting go of the poetry and accepting the reality. So start there. Start with why this sport is attractive to you. What does it do for you? What do you hope that it does? Okay, and recognize just like the difference between that mythology and the reality of of what it actually is. Um, That's first. Second, make sure that you understand the concept of periodization of training. I mean, that is like so fundamental, but it is something that we don't talk about enough. We t- Some people will say, I don't take an off-season. I don't like an off-season, an active recovery day. We've already discussed that. Um, it used to be back in the day. Do you remember? Well, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm probably dating myself here, but there used to be like the Hal Higdon, you know, manual of, of marathon running. And it was like three weeks of buildup and one week of step back, right? And you did that all the way through your marathon training. People don't do that anymore. They just just want to keep building and building. They don't think about step back weeks anymore. They don't think about those days off. So just really get a good understanding of periodization of training. And I would say, recognize the fact that particularly if we're talking about endurance exercise, meaning, um, anything over like marathon or over distance. So heading into, you know, either half iron and above half, um, sorry, half iron man and above full marathon and above those types of long distance training sports. um, It's really important that you understand that you will likely have to be heavier than you think in order to perform well at those distances for most people. Again, it's genetics. It's totally genetics, but recognize that the body is the side effect. And again, I'm, I'm stealing that again from Kirsten's screen. The body is the side effect of the adequate nutrition and training and get your head right around that. Like the last thing I'm going to say is very blunt and it's probably controversial, but I need to say it because if you are coming into ultra endurance sport to manage a serious mental health condition like PTSD and you're not in the care of a physician, Or a team, if you're using it to manage an addiction, a substance addiction that you had from drugs and alcohol, if you're using it to manage like very, very large amounts of weight loss and you're looking to sustain that, please speak to a qualified mental health care practitioner. Make sure you have a team behind you because this can very quickly become dangerous. And again, I have data behind that and I don't want to um, call anyone out in particular, but it's important that you realize this is a sport. It is here to make you healthy and be a leisure activity. And if you're using it for a purpose that it's not designed for, you will get into trouble.
0: I, I enjoyed as one, if one can even say this, your characterization about abuse of the sport, that if we don't handle this thing properly, this thing that we love, if we abuse it, if we misuse it, it's not going to help us. And what we're trying to create here, we're trying to create happy, healthy runners who are allowing, the, are developing themselves through the sport, working hard, overcoming challenges, being the best versions of their, themselves, and nowhere in that journey that hopefully we're on um, do I want you to have to take a detour uh, sometimes a very, very long detour to recover from overtraining syndrome. Yeah,
1: that's so well said. I think it's really important also to say that, like I, and I've said this before in other places, I do not wish to pathologize running. That's not what this is. What this is, is I mean, the research that I have done lets me know that there's a lot of people out there, like all of us, who are in need of support, who are in need of... Um, understanding and our need of reality and truth around what's actually going on and the idea here is for you to never ever run into trouble that you always can engage with the sport healthfully. that it can be a companion to you and it can be a part of a mental health care practice like you can have this plus also other things in your toolbox this is one of the tools And in order for you to be able to engage with it and do it for lifelong, it's important that you recognize that you do have limits so that you don't slam into them, like see where they are, recognize where they are, like mark out that space and see it in the distance and realize that there's so much you can do before you actually have to hit it. And that is power as far as I'm concerned.
0: Jill, thank you so much for your time today. This was a really, really great conversation. Um, If people are interested in speaking with you or learning more about your work and what you have to offer, tell us how they can find you.
1: Yeah. So actually I did that thing where I just changed my Instagram handle and then no one can find me. So I am now, I am now Jill Colangelo Psych on, uh, on Instagram. My YouTube channel, uh, has been kind of dormant for a while, but it's over there's over a hundred videos on there from everything having to do with amenorrhea uh red s overtraining i've interviewed some incredible people on there there's over a hundred videos in that library all very very evergreen like you can watch them anytime and they're really good so that's a case of the jills on youtube you can go to jillcolangelo.com and that's where you will link to absolutely everything including the work that i do i write for triathlete magazine you can link to all my articles there Um, and all of the other places where I've been featured, you can find on my website. So jillcalangelo.com.
0: And that'll be linked in the show notes. You can find Jill and make sure you're following her correct Instagram account. (laughs) (laughs) Jill, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was great to
1: be here. Thanks, Elizabeth.